Well, this morning I invite you to turn with me to our sermon passage, the end of Revelation, chapter 22. It's a bittersweet thing that we gather today to bring to a close this sermon series. At least it's bittersweet to me, having worked and labored in it all summer. You might be ready to get out of this book and to have Barry back, and that's all right. But as we come to the close of this letter, let us remember all of the wonderful and amazing things that we have beheld, that John has seen. At every turn, we have seen God ultimately revealing Jesus the Christ. Indeed, the whole Bible is about Jesus from first to last. We've seen that He is the one who dwells in the midst of His churches and instructs them and bids them to faithfulness. Jesus is the Lamb who is slain the only one in all creation worthy to take the scroll and to bring about what God has planned for history. He's the sovereign king, the one who has ascended to the very throne of God to sit for all of eternity, to reign over all things. Yes, even the frightening, the scary, confusing things of this age. But he's also the one who is coming again to judge the world to bring about a new creation that is purified and perfect and holy. And all of this brings us to our passage today. And like most endings of New Testament letters, the writer gives what may appear like detached or staccato instructions followed by a benediction. But what I want us to see this morning is that Revelation 22, in these warnings and instructions, they're intimately connected to this vision, the last part of this last vision that John sees. It's ultimately of the Garden of Eden. And the, the importance of chapter 22 is it instructs us that we are to do something while we wait on Jesus. So what is it that we are to do until Jesus returns? Let us turn our attention to Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy, but the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. I wonder if this year will be the year. No matter your political persuasion or the candidate of your choice this November, no matter if they're Republican or Democrat, if they're black or white, if they're man or woman, I wonder if this year will be the year that we elect someone who does not profess openly to be a Christian. Most major presidential candidates have always espoused some faith of some sort or another. And this is why I think that almost all of them have chosen to take the oath of office by swearing on the Bible. Ever really thought about that tradition? Why we swear on the Bible? Why we place value on this old archaic book? Well, the practice wanes today in many circles, even most probably, but it was developed back in the ninth century in England. And it remained pervasive in courts of law for nearly a millennium. But why and what does this ceremony mean, really? Well, in theory, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser, at least in the court of law, when you're taking an oath to be truthful. It works like this. For most of history, the Bible has been viewed as God's revelation of ultimate things. Only in the last century, really, has our society relegated it to the genre of myth or fiction or opinion. But as God's revelation, one's testimony towards the Bible demonstrated one's belief about ultimate things, even where you would spend eternity. And therefore, if someone swears on the Bible, surely he'll be truthful about things that are necessarily lesser. Simply put, if anyone lies about something while under oath, having sworn on the Bible, they're saying that they forfeit all that God's Word promises for them. They don't really believe it to be true because they've been untruthful about this lesser thing. The question before us then is, what does God promise in His Word? What is the promise here at the end of Revelation? Let us turn our attention back to the text this morning. That last vision, the last part of this vision John has been given, we see in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 22. 
John, in this vision, sees to the very heart of heaven. He sees the throne of God the Almighty. We need to remember what we've seen previously in chapter 21. Though much of this language is figurative, this is a real place. This will be a physical, tangible creation, a new creation, one in which God's people will dwell with Him, with perfected bodies. And here, John sees the heart of that new creation. Verse 1, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Also on either side the river of, of the life, also on either side of the river the tree of life. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God will be in it. And his servants will worship him. And then we have it, the promise. They will see his face. Their names will be on His name will be on their foreheads and they will reign forever and ever. Beloved, this is a picture of the Garden of Eden. It has come back to us. It has been revealed yet again. Notice all of the imagery we just read from Genesis 2. The tree of life. The river flowing from the throne. This is the place from which Adam and Eve were barred so long ago because of sin. This is the place that all of us Long to go. Think about that. The saints in heaven right now are still a little bit discontent. Not in a sinful manner, but they long to be back in the garden. Even now, in the perfection of God's presence, they long for God to reveal Himself yet again in a new creation. Jesus is waiting to bring His church to himself and to give her that home for which she is long, much like a husband does for his bride. Jesus is the rider on the white horse who comes to make war with Satan to remove all that is unholy. You know, that's precisely where Adam failed in the garden. He didn't keep the garden. He didn't work it as God had commanded. He listened to Satan's words and not the Word of God. But we know that Christ has perfectly followed and obeyed all that His Father has commanded of Him. That's why we see, as one commentator puts it, the Edenic imagery beginning in 22 verse 1 reflects an intention to show that the building of the temple, the building of the temple which began in Genesis chapter 2, will be completed in Christ and His people and it will encompass the whole of the new creation. What a beautiful picture. God's presence, God's temple going out to the stars through the the whole of the known universe, the new creation, God's presence everywhere, unmitigated, unmediated, fully present, fully revealed, full of grace and truth. That's why John then immediately hears, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. And Jesus Himself adds His testimony. Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 
Why does John hear these things? Think about it. He's just been shown the end of the age. He has just seen the new creation. He has seen God's presence with His people. He has transcended time and space to see the glory of God. He needs encouragement to believe it. And so do we. Something so awesome. Something so life-changing. He needs encouragement to believe that, yes, this is true. Because it sounds too good to be true. He begins to worship almost immediately, even mistakenly at the foot of the angel. He's done this three times in Revelation. You'd think he'd learn the lesson. But he's so overwhelmed by the presence of God that he falls prostrate immediately. Are these promises that overwhelming to you? Do you see it as the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? If anyone asks you what happens to you when you die, what will you say? Or if they say, you know, what do you think is going to be the end of the world? What will it be like? What will you say? Beloved, if we, if we don't start articulating this imagery, this vision, and we really haven't begun to understand what God is doing in history, if we still wonder and doubt and waffle back and forth on what happens to us when we die, do we really believe that these words are trustworthy and true? The Word of God has just declared the end to you here, now. This is what will happen when Christ returns. So we should worship God. What a beautiful picture this is. Being in the very presence of God and seeing His face. Something that Moses longed to do. All of God's people will see His face. You know, another reason why so many people swear on the Bible throughout history is because it's not simply a book of wise sayings or promises. It's also a legal book. It represents, at bottom, a covenant. A covenant between God and His people. It's the kind of arrangement that we see, you remember, back in Genesis 15, when God covenants with Abram or Abraham. He promised to give him a land and an offspring. And that covenant is ratified in that vision, that, that weird picture. Abram falls asleep and has a vision as the day was closing. And we see animals laid out and cut in half. And that smoking pot and fire passing through the middle of it. That symbolizes that whoever breaks this covenant the same thing will happen to them. They will be rent asunder. They will be torn in two. I don't need to remind you, the beautiful imagery in that covenant is that God is the only one who passes through the animals. He not only promises to give Abram a, a land and an offspring, He promises to keep the covenant Himself, even if it should cost Him His life. And thus the practice of swearing on the Bible. People take oaths on the Scriptures to say that if they swear by this and they're lying, 
May the same punishment be dealt out to them. If they're in the court of law and their perjury causes someone to be put in jail or to be put to death, may the same thing happen to them. Now, thankfully, the penalty for perjury in the United States is not an eye for an eye. You get a maximum of five years. But notice, that is what we see in these verses. Skip with me down to verse 18 and 19. There John records, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city. You see, this is not just about revelation. It does say the prophecy of this book. But this goes all the way back to Deuteronomy, that covenant of old. We see in chapter 12 of that book, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Fundamentally then, what are we to do in response to this command? Well, we're to bear witness to God's Word in the world. It's not our Word. It's not our judgment on the world. It's not our promise extended to the world. It's not our good deeds or our love. It's the love of God. It's His justice and His judgment. We are simply on the stand to bear witness to all that we have seen and heard. As Bob preached last week, we are blessed to be a blessing. This is why the Israelites were sent into the promised land in the first place. To be a blessing. To transform the known world. Listen as Moses writes in Deuteronomy 4, verses 5-8. through 8. He says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you. You see, the purpose is to live as God has commanded us to live. So, what are we to do until Jesus returns? What's the command and the imperative from Revelation 22 as we wait for the return of Eden, God's true promised land? The angel tells us right in verse 10, Look with me. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. What are the words of the prophecy of this book? Beloved, it's the revelation of Christ. It's that Jesus is coming. Behold, He's coming quickly. He's coming like a thief in the night. And we're called, like someone swearing an oath in a courtroom, to bear witness to Jesus not to go out and to win arguments with the culture. That is important and a special calling for some to do. But we're not to go out and to beat people over the head with the Bible. 
We're called to go out and to defend the name of Christ, to bear witness to what God is doing in the world. That Jesus is coming again. That He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is God. He is the righteous judge and He is coming. He is going to return. You know, we almost cannot bear this thought that Jesus is coming again as a righteous judge. It's so awesome and overwhelming, isn't it? To think that every person in history will stand before the throne of judgment. It's why the world balks at the Christian religion, at the testimony of God's Word. (laughs) That we should be so presumptuous to believe that God has revealed Himself to us. Who are you to judge me? Who are you to say that this is right or wrong? Isn't that the posture of our culture? But He has. Definitively, in these words, God has revealed Himself to all of us today. But it's unbearable without the Holy Spirit. Because you and I know people, real people, whom we love that are alienated from Christ. Not in theory. You know people who are dear to your heart that do not have Jesus. As John says, the dogs outside of the new creation. Those who will suffer. Those who are tormented forever in the lake of fire for eternity. It's heartbreaking. But we cannot shy away from it. It is meant to be heartbreaking. That's why Jesus Himself adds the weight of His testimony. He's the one who is coming quickly. The one who had to come to die for His people. To purchase our redemption. We shouldn't be thinking of verse 20 yet. Come Lord Jesus. Because if we do... We're not doing justice to all the people we know who are without Christ. For if I really pray today, right now, come Lord Jesus, and He appears, my heart will be crushed for people who do not know Him. But that's the purpose. It's to motivate us to go because we have the words of life. Don't you see? Our problem is rarely that we're too judgmental, that we're too harsh or too severe or too divisive. Think about what we've just heard and seen in this book. People thrown into the lake of fire. The real cancer in the church is that we're often not honest about sin and judgment. The real problem is that we too often hope for comfort and enjoyment only in this life, in this age. This life was being taken from John's readers left and right. They had no choice but to be persecuted by the Romans for believing in Jesus. But ultimately, we have to have a clear picture and testimony concerning heaven and hell. We have to have a salvation to offer the world then that exceeds anything they can find here and now. And it all comes down to this. As I put my hand on this Bible, 
The question for us is, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe all the words of this book and keep them? Or do you scorn the Bible as a silly old tradition? Or something that's okay to sit on the shelf? You see, before we pray Jesus' return, we must echo the words we find in verse 17. The Spirit and the bride, the Spirit and the church bid people, come. Anyone who hears, come. To the one who is thirsty, let the one of you who is thirsty, come. Let the one of you who desires the water, the tree of life, come without price. You can have this water today. Christ is here offering it. What does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be a blessing to other people? It's more than just nice feelings. It's more than good deeds done to one another. It is at bottom salvation itself. Notice the words. Blessed are those who wash their robes. That's not their own doing. It's an allusion to chapter 7. Blessed are those who wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Who have the water of life without price. Blessed are those who have God's name on their foreheads. Blessed are those who see His face in eternity. Who worship Him. Blessed are those who have Christ. Who know Him. Who love Him. Who serve Him. Who joyfully bow to Him as King. Blessed are those in Christ. And those who are not, are not blessed. Let us then go forth and bear witness to Christ today. Oh Lord God, we come to You because this is an overwhelming thing to which You have called us. That we should know You.